Welcome to the 342nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Rosalind Williams to the program to discuss her latest article, Crisis, the Emergence of Another Hazardous Concept. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 15th, 2021, there are 4,649,567 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Family Man Turned Away by Dozens of COVID-Filled Hospitals. This appeared in AP News, 14th of September, 2021. Dateline Montgomery, Alabama. As hundreds of mostly unvaccinated COVID-19 patients filled Alabama intensive care units, hospital staff in North Alabama contacted 43 hospitals in three states to find a specialty cardiac ICU bed for Ray Martin Demonia, his family wrote in his obituary. The man, the Coleman, Alabama man, was finally transferred to Meridian, Mississippi, about 170 miles away. That is where the 73-year-old antique stealer died September 1st, 2021, because of the cardiac event he suffered. Now his family is making a plea. In honor of Ray, please get vaccinated if you have not, in an effort to free up resources for non-COVID-related emergencies, his obituary read. Due to COVID-19, CRMC emergency staff contacted 43 hospitals in three states in search of a cardiac ICU bed and finally located one in Meridian, Mississippi, his obituary read, referencing Coleman Regional Medical Center. He would not want any other family to go through what he did. Alabama, for weeks, has seen a surge of mostly unvaccinated patients filling hospitals and intensive care units, making it increasingly difficult to transfer patients to other facilities for specialty care said Dr. Don Williamson, the former state health officer who now heads the Alabama Hospital Association. Every day, hospitals are trying to find a place to transfer patients, and it's very difficult, Williamson said. We've had patients transferred to Georgia, to Kentucky, to Florida. Jennifer Malone, a spokesperson for the Coleman Hospital, confirmed Demonia was a patient and said he needed to be transferred to receive a higher level of specialized care not available at Coleman Regional Medical Center. She could not comment more for privacy reasons, but said the continued surge in COVID patients has saturated tertiary care hospitals, creating an ongoing and increasing challenge for Coleman regional staff to find hospitals able to receive patient transfers when needed. Williamson also could not comment on Demonia's case, but said the struggle to find an open bed to transfer a patient is a scenario being played out daily. Basically, half of our ICU beds are now filled with COVID patients, Williamson said. Time this article appeared, 
Alabama had 2,474 COVID-19 patients in state hospitals, of which 86% were unvaccinated, according to the Alabama Hospital Association. Nearly half of the state's intensive care unit beds, or 772 beds, are occupied by a person with COVID-19, and the surge of patients meant some hospitals had to convert other space to ICUs. Patients who normally would be treated in ICU wards are instead being cared for in emergency rooms, normal beds, or even gurneys left in hallways, state officials said. The state had 1,562 ICU patients Monday, but 1,551 dedicated ICU beds. The situation was even worse on September 1st, when pneumonia passed away. The state that day had 92 more patients needing ICU care than it had dedicated beds. Demonia's daughter did not immediately respond to a Facebook message seeking comment on this story. After threatening to reach an all-time high for hospitalizations during the coronavirus pandemic, state hospitals have seen a slight decline in recent days, says Dr. Scott Harris, head of the Alabama Department of Public Health. We continue to have a real crisis in Alabama with our ICU bed capacity, Harris said. Al Harris said Alabama's vaccination numbers have improved in recent weeks as the state recorded double-digit deaths daily for a month or so, just under 40% of the state's residents are fully vaccinated, compared with 53% nationally, according to the CDC. In his obituary and in a story in his hometown paper, The Coleman Times, Demonia was remembered as a family man who developed a love of antiques as a child and volunteered his auctioneering skills and sense of showmanship at community fundraisers. Ray Demonia was like no other his family wrote. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. This is one I've really been looking forward to, and let me introduce my guest, Rosalind Williams. Rosalind Williams taught at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology from 1982 till her retirement in 2018. In 2001, she joined MIT's program in Science, Technology, and Society, serving as program head from 2002 to 2006. Her main scholarly affiliation is the Society for the History of Technology, of which she served as president in 2005 and 6, and from which she received its highest award, the Leonardo da Vinci Prize in 2013. First three books, Dream Worlds, Notes from the Underground, and Retooling, address this question, what are the implications for human life, both individual and collective, when we live in a predominantly self-constructed world. In responding to it, she has studied the emergence of consumer culture in late 19th century France, and the creation of underworlds, both imagined and actual as models of a technological environment, and the retooling of MIT as the Institute confronts the effects of an information age of which it has been a prime generator. Her most recent book, The Triumph of Human Empire, appeared with Chicago Press in 2013 and looks at the works and lives of three well-known writers, Jules Verne, William Morris, and Robert Louis Stevenson, to illuminate the event of consciousness at the end of the 19th century, when humans realized that they were close to mapping the entire globe and that the global frontier was closing. It's an honor to have Rosalind Williams with me today. Ros, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. I'm happy to be here. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there right now. I'm calling from Newton, Massachusetts, a beautiful September day. Uh, Massachusetts is a 
um, predominantly liberal state, a lot of hospitals, a lot of educational institutions. And in terms of the pandemic, it's a place that has tried and succeeded as well as any area in trying to take a reasonable approach to, uh, you know, a mix of uh, rules about transmission, but not stopping life altogether. So it's been, it's been a good place in terms of overall atmosphere and approach to be in this pandemic. Uh, I, I also want to mention though that, that MIT as an institution, which is what, about three miles that way, um, it's been very interesting to watch MIT adapt to the pandemic because you know, MIT is an engineering school. That's the self-image and it, the social engineering that is going on there is just, <clears throat> it's, it's a huge set of procedures and projects and it, it's really quite awesome. Um, I think it's it's been working well, but I think what is most interesting to me about MIT's dealing with the pandemic is that despite a lot of a lot of rules and procedures the attitude is first of all not everybody's going to follow all the procedures all the time and that is how humans are and secondly uh, we may still have our outbreak and it could be quite serious in spite of what we're doing so it's this mix of hmm. kind of tough social engineering but also a sort of uh, built-in forgiveness just because people are people it's 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 been a very I, I'm sure every institution in the U.S. could, you know, has a story. It's just that the the MIT one is particularly dramatic. I think. I, I kept an eye on technical <clears throat> schools uh, throughout the pandemic because I was curious to see how, just to your point, how much they emphasized their own capacity to do kind of technological problem solving, things like ventilation, yeah. producing masks, what have you. And I saw a real mixed bag, I guess not unsurprisingly. Um, you know, Purdue was very early saying that they will be open and that they will basically, you know, steer their own ship. Other technological universities like Drexel, where I was at that time, um, really didn't do that and closed down hard and followed state level pandemic advice. Where is MIT on that spectrum? I think MIT is, uh, did close down hard last year. Um, I mean, it was, it was basically off-campus learning for the most part. But this year, they really, really want to have a campus. It's just, that, that's, again, it's part of MIT's approach that we need each other. And we're here for each other, and this really matters. So, so there's this determination or goal of staying open as a campus, which is enforced by a whole set of regulations, like twice-weekly testing, even if you're vaccinated, that sort of thing. Um, but... But, you know, the understanding that it, it may not work and, and if it doesn't, you know, it, it's, we can only do our best. We're only human. So it's, it's, it's um, but it comes across as quite a consistent message. By the way, every morning, I understand, uh, there is a, uh, an event called COVID Calls at MIT, but it's a dean who is calling the students and saying, here are the latest numbers, this is what's happening. And so anyway, I just heard about this uh, today and somebody said, I wasn't, wasn't aware of that. I said, yeah. oh, I'm on it. They looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> you you thought you were calling MIT students this morning. No, I, I, 
I've been there, done that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Well, I'll have to I'll have to look at that. I'll have to have the dean on as a guest so we yes. can do emerged COVID calls. That would be something. Well, if you get Ian Waits, he's your guy. I, I think I think it'd be quite a, a a successful program. So okay, all right. Well, thanks for that. Um, I've been asking guests also, Rosalind, if they would share a memory of this time. And mm. it's a I always say this, but it really is a kind of impossible task to parse out individual moments. So take it however you want to. But I'm curious, there's something, a moment or something that really sticks in your mind that resonates about this COVID era for you. Actually, I think moments are much easier to specify and to describe than overall feelings or, you know, there's all sorts of inchoate um, internalized experiences but if you say name an event, I would name um, it would be sometimes sometime in March 2020, 2020 when I, I had to go to MIT for some reason and the campus was deserted and it looked you know looked like the proverbial neutron bomb had dropped because there's all the buildings were there um, but nobody and and so it was this sort of premonition of the end times that I, I think almost anybody. Um, in the last year and a half could, could come up with a very similar example. I mean, the other, the other experience would have been more recently, would have been this summer um, when I went to Iceland with my family. There was a moment when Iceland was quite open and it looked like the place to go if you could go anywhere. But on the way back from that trip, which was very enjoyable, but on the way back in the airport, it's like all of a sudden there were huge lines because they had had to tighten their security, their COVID security, uh, very quickly and definitively. And looking around those lines, I thought, okay, we're all in this for the long haul. It's, it's it, this is not this pandemic is not going to get a vaccine and go away. It's going to be more of a a chronic condition. So those are kind of bookends of experiences. Thanks for sharing those. I want to ask you about the metaphor of the neutron bomb mm -hmm. and why you reach for that one. But, and, and I'll, I just want to share that, that I had that same, at that time I was living in Princeton in the early period of the pandemic. And um, <laughs> to me, it, it felt like things I had read from like cold war planning documents uh, that, that we, that I was living in a town where a nuclear attack had taken place somewhere close by, but not in my town. It, you know what I mean? That we were we were sheltered, but my mind went to that nuclear space immediately. And yeah. It sounds like yours did too. Well, we're speaking for myself, a child of the Cold War, and of course, both these images of the crowd and the emptiness. There, there, of course, the arts behind them. There's either a novel or a movie or TV or I mean, we've all particularly um, uh, visually see, seeing the image of the deserted place that used to be full of people. So yeah, um, I, I think, I think we've, we are preconditioned to make that association, alas. But that didn't come with COVID. I mean, that, for me, that goes back many, many years of Cold War presentations. Right. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is your um, April article that you published in the journal Technology and Culture about crisis, crisis, the emergence of another hazardous 
well, make sure I get the title right here, Crisis, the Emergence of Another Hazardous um, Concept. I was going to say term, Crisis, the Emergence of Another Hazardous Concept in Technology and Culture, which everybody should check out and read and think about and talk about. And and so I wanted to to talk with you about language today. And, I, and I've had a lot of guests on um, who come from different sort of parts of the disaster research tent and the people who are specialists in risk, who are specialists in emergency management. So there's a lot of language out there. Yeah. Uh, and there's some of it is highly technical terminology and some of it is broader and bridging and more conceptual. So I was really glad to get you to come on and talk about this term crisis because we hadn't talked about that one much. So I guess I want to start with a kind of a general question for you as to, to why you got captured by this term. Oh. Well, actually, I got captured by Manuel Castells, who, uh, after the 2008 economic crisis, um, want, went to the Gulbenkian Foundation in Lisbon and, and got them to support uh, a series of meetings of scholars, mainly from the social sciences, to talk about the economic or financial crisis. I mean, whether it's economic or financial matters, but the word crisis was common. And, and, uh, that was a very common way of referring to that event. Uh, Castells was just, he wanted to understand what that event was really and what the aftermath was. Like, 08, we sort of can follow events. But then this was 09 when he was putting together a, a group. Of scholars, and and by the way, in my life, the most exciting scholarly interactions I've had are when it's a group of people you don't know that well who get together to study a single topic or person or theme, and it just over and over again really really works well. So this really worked well. Um, but the word crisis and the word aftermath were were core mission here. So that's that's when I started thinking about this term. Um, and then in a, a, it was a year or two later, I got, I was approached by a fellow colleague at, at MIT, Jim Parity, who was then head of the, the comparative media studies program. And he wanted to run a session on the concept of slow moving crises, mm -hmm. slow moving crises. And I thought that's interesting, but a crisis, that's an oxymoron, a crisis is a sudden sharp break where it's life or death and you've, you've got to seize that moment, okay? So how can it be slow moving? So I won't try to answer the question here, but I, those were two events um, that got me thinking about crises. But I also want to mention this emergence of a hazardous concept. That's lifted from Leo Marx's uh, very, very well-known, in fact, I, article in Technology and Culture that appeared in, I think it was 2010. Right. And I think it's the most cited article in technology and culture. That may be old information, but um, in, in history of technology, it's, it's very well known. And it's titled, you know, Technology, the Emergence of a Hazardous Concept. And, and Leo Marx explains why the very word technology is overused, is inflated, is unclear, and is hazardous because it tempts people then to use the word as an explanation rather than unpacking it. It's just plugged into a situation and technology does this, technology does that. It encourages 
technological determinism in our thinking. So I thought, okay, crisis is similar. It's vague, it can cover a whole range of events, and it's also used just to um, get people upset and worried, but it doesn't really explain what it is or what's in common with different kinds of crises. What was Leo Marx excavating at that moment? I mean, what, what was going on, do you think, that provoked him at that moment to see technology in that way. Any, any, any sense of that? Because I, I want to go further when, and when we talk about what's in the atmosphere of, of crisis and why you want to react to it now. now I'm, I'm, I'm curious about his logic. Well, you, interesting you ask. Uh, Leo Marx will soon celebrate his 102nd birthday. Amazing. And that means that that article, he wrote it when he was in his 90s or at night, you know. Yeah. So, and he had been thinking about this for a long time because there's a preceding article that had appeared in another journal in, in the late 1990s, I believe. Very, its title is even similar. Uh, so he was already thinking about uh, the hazards of the concept. He would say word and concept of technology. So, so what happened in the early 2000s that he kept going back to that? It, it, you know, somebody, somebody once told me, uh, if you want to write a good doctor, doctoral dissertation, take something that bothers you. And so this bothered Leo. And, and around MIT, you will hear everybody talking about technology all the time in a very careless way. So I think being at the Institute had something to do with it, but you don't have to be at MIT to hear the word technology all the time and used in very sloppy ways. So coming to crisis then, um, maybe we don't have to do the full word no. study, although I'm curious too, I mean, what's the sort of family history of the, of the term itself? How far do we need to go back to find it? Well, you always go back to the Greeks, right? Uh, and, and you do in this case, I, I cannot speak Greek and I won't attempt to, but the cognate word in Greek refers to like a cut or a slice or a, yeah, it's a very sharp edge. Is, is the, mm -hmm. con the mm -hmm. connotation, and it's a it's some it's a decisive point. We if we just said turning point, that's probably as close as we can get. And then again, there there are Latin you know, variations, but the word the word was really limited to two kinds of events for a long time. One event would be astrological, that in the skies, you know, the, the planet is passing, you know, here or there and back is something else. It's a very sharp uh, description of planetary or other cosmic motions. Um, but then uh, the, the, other, the other use is in disease. And uh, a crisis is a point in any illness where the person may live or may die. And it's going to go one way or the other. They're not going to stay where they're at. So what interests me, of course, about the current pandemic is we're going back to that, one of the very original meanings of the word crisis, but it's not an individual patient. It's a whole population. It's a global population. And so the question of will who live or die or what, right? I mean, you're talking in in collective terms. So it's a collective crisis, not, a, not an individual one, but still there's this medical, very hard reality. I, you know, next morning, you're either going to be alive or you won't. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to think also that that astrological point, because does that, the term disaster 
being yes. a sad, yes. sad star. And so it also has this mm -hmm. sort of similar cosmological, um, you know, foregrounding, but then mm -hmm. very much like crisis, it now is a word that sort of stands in for everything and nothing, I think, to a certain degree. The coming back to the more recent history of the use of the term, I think, let's speak for myself. I mean, just growing up, a crisis was the energy crisis mm -hmm. when I was a kid mm -hmm. and it was yep. waiting in, and it was, and it was a collective thing because yes. we waited, yeah. a, we waited yeah. in a long line of yeah. huge cars with the air conditioning on in Texas waiting for our turn at the gas pump. Mm -hmm. But it was just something you experienced in a group Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and the, it wasn't, you know, too long and you get into your education and you learn about the Cuban missile crisis and I suppose a person could personalize that and think of their own death. But in general, the imagery we have of that is people swarming to grocery stores and feverishly trying to dig a fallout shelter in their backyard. And it, it's these are these are unbounded from the individual yeah. experience, is my point. Or, yeah, OK. Or, or you're, you're not sure where the where the edge is uh, for that kind of a crisis. Mm. But you've just named I mean, there's a military crisis, you know, is is very is so different from an environmental crisis or, you know, to take another which is so different from an economic crisis right so you go through and look at the adjectives and name very different types of, of crises in fact if you go back to biden's inaugural address as president he goes through a list of i think six crises that are very different in nature COVID is one of them but only one of them and environment is another one and 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 he's he's just saying we are we are beset by multiple crises, and and he's not pretending that that they have a causal connection even. Or, but they're they're all they're all big problems. That's how crisis is often used today. It's a big problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that's not a decisive turning point. Um, it can lead to one, but now I mean again, if I think the Cuban Missile Crisis is very stark because they're you know, either they move or we move. And it was, it did have this aura of decisiveness, but, you know, dependence on fossil fuels, that's, it's, it's really, that's a very, very, very spread out crisis. Mm -hmm. And, and thinking about, again, the difference between crisis and, and disaster, you know, the, to back to your point that crisis is a moment also in which the, is a moment uh, and in which there's an uncertain outcome or the outcome is, is imminent. And it's yet to be known by the person who's describing it in this in this way, yeah. which um, that uncertainty is something that is something we don't like much in modern technological society. I don't think. I mean, once risk oh. is invented with insurance in the 19th century and instruments of control in the 20th century, particularly around nuclear weapons, this idea that you have an uncertain outcome is a little unnerving in the Cold War, I think. <laughs> funny because I was just invited to join another committee at MIT, which is a committee on our uncertain future. It's on uncertainty. I, I you know, um, years ago, I, I, I read a book by Peter Maris called Loss and Change. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful work of social studies. And he, he's comparing people who are widowed, widows, with people who migrate from from their country to some other. And he talks very eloquently about the need of humans for predictability and just some sense that, that there's some 
relation between cause and effect in some set of connections that, that will be behind you. And, and so this, this idea of crisis that removes all sense of predictability, because you only, you don't have just one, you have a whole bunch of them and how might they interact? I think it's much more troubling than we realize that, that, um, and, and as, as always, poor people are, you know, the ones who suffer the first and the most obviously. There's just so much, uh, you know, lack of support. But I, you know, I end the article in te technology and culture by just saying, you know, we're, we're so hooked on the glamour of technology, either as bringing the end of the world or as bringing progress. Like, give me stability. Just give me right. predictability. Right. Just, you know, that... Right. If I pick up the phone or the equivalent, is, is there's somebody there. <laughs> I, I just, right. I just think we're 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 too kind of hooked on the excitement, and yeah, I've noticed that most of the social welfare states in the world that have any close approximation of being successful, they are very valued by the people in them, right? I mean, people want them, they want to keep them, they may complain about how they're run, and mm -hmm. but. Anyway, so sustainability maintenance is another word sure. um, that might fill the, that niche. I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Rosalind Williams today about the concept of crisis and how we might think about it in COVID times. Uh, you mentioned Biden's address, and I actually just want to read a, yes, a couple of sentences. I won't read the whole thing, but there's a passage in your piece that's really, I think, um, I want to talk more about it. And, and this is from Biden's speech. He says, we will be judged. I don't do a Biden impression. We will be judged, you and I, for how we resolve the cascading crises of mm -hmm. our era. And you wrote in 2011, in Biden's rendition, crisis is no longer a point of reckoning involving powers beyond human control. Crisis has become a description of ongoing history. All these problems merging into one gigantic cascade. So that's the work of the historian. There is to spot when some public official is invoking history and its, its majesty, its weight or its failures. I was curious that you brought it down into that language. Can you say a little bit more about how you interpret Biden's speech in that sense? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just a question I keep asking. What nags me <laughs> is, is, you know, what is history and, and what, what is it now as opposed to, you know, how the Greeks thought of it? Um, and, and just kind of trying to get below the conscious this issue and that issue, just what are we thinking about history? How are we thinking about it overall? So, um, you know, Biden's speech actually is very eloquent in describing a view of history as we are living it, okay? Not somebody's theory, but lived history, the phenomenology of history. It's this sense of cascading crises, right? But I, I wouldn't stop there because it's also a sense that there still is a lot of room for progress, for good things to happen, for kids to go to school, get educated, grow up, right? And, and have a life. And, and 
there's a terrible pandemic. We have a vaccine within you know months that is is an amazing um, uh, uh, weapon against against this awful pandemic. So so the belief in progress has not gone away. It's still very strong and for good reasons. But it now coexists with this sense of cascading crises. And I would argue these are not unrelated. In other words, what we call progress can quickly become, or at least feel like a crisis. So it's, I, I'm, I'm describing our current historical consciousness as a split one, hmm. split between the, the belief in progress and the experience of rolling apocalypse, to use my favorite term. I'm, I'm glad we came to that. And I, I just want to put a, a pin in rolling apocalypse for, for one second, and just to bring you back to Biden, because you spot in Biden's speech and what you were just saying, um, I don't want to be cynical about it, but this is an opportunity for a politician who has a, a strong legislative agenda to, to point out mm -hmm. and be very clear, as, you, as we've said, we're at a turning point and we have to act. There's no going back. We're not sure what going forward means. And so now here's the policy points in my speech. I, I don't want to be too deterministic about it, but is this what a progressive politician must have to succeed in 2021? Oh, oh that's, <laughs> that's beyond my pay grade. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, look, I mean, the, out, the outcome in California with the recall is very interesting that right. it looked like, you know, taking a hard line on rules that you follow because you don't want to get COVID looked like it came through pretty loud and clear. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe that's a flip, maybe it won't happen again. But but no, I, th I think we're at a political moment where every politician is asking him or herself exactly this question. Like, you know, how much do people, what do people want? Do they want security enough to, you know, uh, to real, to pass a legislation that would make it possible or not? I, I um, you know, I, I did a I, I think our consciousness is very split on this because people do want security and do want um, a sense of reliability. But this coexists with a very strong suspicion of expertise, of state power. Uh, it's not just, I don't want to pay taxes. There's more at, at work. Back to the Castell's paper that I wrote that I mentioned as a response to the um, uh, 08 financial crisis. I did a case study there, a little case study, of Berkeley as an institution, the, the University of California at Berkeley, and and how the reaction to the financial crisis was so confused when it came to higher education, that on the one hand, the belief, the need for higher education was stronger than ever, people valued it more than ever, but there was a growing suspicion that, well, can't they get along on the budget they have? Do they really need to, to charge this much in tuition? And, 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 you know, we are all sacrificing, so why can't they sacrifice? So there was a, a, a strong desire for a social good, a collective good, but there was not a collective uh, agreement on how to make it come about. That's a slow-moving crisis, by the way, I think, is the way of defining it. Um, and I think we're in a very similar moment of people long for predictability and and you know, for the support that they've gotten from the federal government, that's been mm -hmm. very valued. But 
people are also, you know, wary of state power, of paying too much, of the experts not knowing what they're doing. It's again a split consciousness. It's um, I just want to come back to your to this rolling apocalypse idea, and uh, again, just a a line from towards the end of your essay, you write, this is our current historical consciousness, as you described a moment ago, sort of a split consciousness, the perception of living in a rolling apocalypse. The most common way of perceiving human self-destruction is that it rolls toward us from just over the horizon of the future. But we could also think of the rolling apocalypse as bearing down on us from the past. I'm predisposed to just want to really embrace a concept like this because an apocalypse is, again, it's supposed to be a really defining, it's end times. So it's pretty yeah. definitive. Yeah. Uh, and you should know when you're in it. But the rolling aspect brings in, the again, the power of time. And so it, it, it is also, I, I feel sort of the utility of you mixing things up a little bit on us here and how we think about how time mm -hmm. is operating. Oh, and yeah. so I, I wonder, again, about the you know, if we're living in a rolling apocalypse, how is that, how is that ex experienced? How is that somehow connected with this sense of crisis? What does that term do for you? <laughs> well, first of all, I'd go to artists, not historians, <laughs> to get there, or historians who act like artists. Yeah, yeah. I just, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, if I, for example, which you do in your work, by the way, I should say. I mean, that's why I and many others love your work. Is that you rely on literature and art as tools to make sense of these kind of things. So Not, I quote back to you people yeah. who speak much. I mean, I'm just thinking of Robert Louis Stevenson in the South Pacific in the 1880s, 1890s, seeing, he didn't say rolling apocalypse, but he said death coming in like a tide, death coming in like a tide. And it wasn't just the South Pacific peoples who were being wiped out, dying, literally dying again, from disease brought by, okay, brought from afar. It was the whites, he said, you know, we're all in this. It's not just going to be them. Um, so the, he, you know, I, I would just, I, I would love to give a reading list to anybody who would like like one, but I'm not going to go further here other than to say that, that I think imaginative literature is, um, expresses the sense very clearly. I, I think it's more that, the apocalypse was something that was the end times of something we were moving toward with this image of, you know, you know, over some horizon, terrible things would happen and be essentially the end of the world as we know it. But that experience is being lived now day by day. And for example, being a liberal Newton, I get a lot of solicitations for giving money to good causes. So did you know that I think it was 80 or 90 percent the monarch butterflies in the world have perished in the last year because monarchs are very dependent on a certain sequence of warmth and food that they no longer have. So, I mean, how many times a day do you read about the sequoias are going to be burning, folks, you know? And those, those folks in Louisiana, they're going to have five days of rain this time. I mean, how can you not feel the end times in our times that it's not out there anymore this and of course climate is is the kind of the biggie there in terms of effects but it's not just climate it's just you know all sorts of predictable experiences you can no longer have it's I, i'm amazed 
you know, that people are bearing up as well as they are. But that's the idea that the end times are part of our times. They're not out there anymore. They're part, so, they're part of our life. So bringing that back into, you know, again, this kind of split consciousness problem that you were pointing to a minute ago, I want to sort of ask you about, again, to the role of technology here, but particularly the role of engineering, technology managers, mm -hmm. economic forecasters, the the masters of, of control, the masters of predictability. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, right? So, yeah, so called right. so masters of predictability, um, who, and I, I mean, I think of the role of public health in, yeah. in these yeah. times, to sort of bring us into COVID times, yeah. struggling to predict oh. for us at every turn to get. So, you remember early in the pandemic, as you mentioned, you know, two weeks, it'll be two, we all heard, it'll be two weeks. We'll shut everything down, and then we'll, you know, the curve will be broken, and then, and, and I'm not faulting them. No, no. It, it seems right. like an impossible position to be in to be a sort of a, a a translator of the messy world of of apocalypse into the safe world of predictability, and to then constantly be wrong. But yeah, but there, I, I we have to we have to say that scientists and the and public understanding of science people i mean that there have mistakes have been made and and one one mistake has been this kind of appeal to science tells us you know this appeal to science as if it's the answer instead of science is a process it keeps working it gives you answers but it keeps changing in response to new information i think there's a lot of oversell of science that is now coming back Tahanas is not helping, you know, in terms of respect, overall respect for science, to claim that it can do more than it can do. And I, I think this this is not just my realization. I think a lot of people on the front lines of science have, have come to realize this in the last year that, you know, that they, they say mistakes were made, they can, they have to be corrected, they will be. But but there was a lot of kind of reifying of science rather than looking on it as a process. And this is, this is, you know, this is an educable moment. How does science work? Well, we're learning. And, and to bring it back into, into COVID times, I would say on any given day, a person consuming news would have heard about, let's, let's go back to December, let's say of, of last year, um, climate crisis, COVID crisis, and constitutional crisis yes, yeah. in the U.S., but not only in the U.S., but in the U.S. at that moment, Inter used interchangeably, as you were saying mm -hmm. earlier. The, the, and, and I wonder, I guess my question to you there is, what does that do in terms of giving people the right amount of awareness and concern without pushing them into a place um, of, of despair or, or inaction? Well, that's, that's why crisis is a hazardous concept. Right. Because it can have that. It can, it's like help, you know, uh, instead of, I mean, this is where, um, you know, the engineering, we have a problem. We're going to solve the problem. I mean, that, that can also go way too far in claims, but, uh, at least the, you know, there, there is some, uh, some reason why to talk about something as a challenge is, sounds better than a crisis. I mean, the challenge implies there is a response or a set of responses. I, I think one interesting question is, you know, are all these crises really unrelated? Are they just a cluster, a rhetorical cluster? Uh, is it just a pattern recognition 
of a spill, a spreading center of disorder? Or is there, you know, what is there causality? I mean, I, I would think that the political crisis um, of, of our country or other countries does, does have a role in, in being related in some causal way to, to uh, what other things that we call crises. Um, and that there is a, you know, the difficulty of government in working is, is very much intertwined with these other crises. This Castell's uh, organized uh, workshop that I mentioned very early on, all of us realized that we were talking about a crisis of democracy, much more than mm. a crisis of the, of the economy. And that, you know, so sometimes scholarship works. I, th I think we, we mm -hmm. recognize that very soon and, and we were and are correct. Um, if you don't have a, a functioning democracy, then yes, crises get worse and they start spilling over onto each other and they seem slow and people get discouraged and it's kind of a downward spiral. Is that how you see COVID, the COVID experience in the United States? Is the meta, is the meta crisis really one of, of governance? No, uh, it, it certainly, it has revealed, disasters reveal. I don't have to tell you that, you know that. The disaster of, of COVID, which is its own, that is a medical disaster, 4 million people. I mean, you know, uh, that's a disaster on its own. But, but the, um, uh, what it has revealed it is the the democratic crisis where we don't we are not able to function as a governing democracy. People are disagreeing on the rules, and and you know um, I, I, that is very worrisome because then we don't have the means to address what is a real crisis. It only it only it only has revealed fault lines that were already there. But I would say more than revealed, this is worsened them. I mean, there's people feel they have permission to do things that I don't think they did before. And that, that isn't COVID. I, I really appreciated your, in the article, your close reading of Biden's speech. And so I know you're, I mean, you're reading literature and pulling on things from the 19th century, but also there's, I think there's new language, new metaphor being created right now. in, mm -hmm. in these times, I mean, I think of everything from the protest signs to the turning of masks into mm -hmm. political placards and everything in between. Yeah. You always have your antenna up for this stuff, Rosalind. I wonder what have you noticed that you have sort of taken a further pause yeah. on in sort of COVID language? Yeah, that's that's a that's a tough question. I don't I look, I think anybody who's listening in could probably <laughs> could probably answer that question as well as I can. I mean all of us are antennae are kind of in in a position now to pick up pick up these things, you know, I've just been struck by as a humanist uh, the the revival of the humanities, and I don't mean English lit as it's taught. You know, I mean people um, composing things, talking to each other, talking to their families differently. There's needing poetry, needing music. It's all the more painful not to be able to do these things in performance. But I, I just, um, people thinking about their lives and their jobs, and I, I'm not sure what they're reading. Maybe it's all online, and that's that's not my, you know, that's not where I get most of my reading, but it clearly is a source of solace and support for a lot of people. So I, I, I mean, I've just noticed that um, 
and engineers and social scientists, I think, are still struggling. And I, I talk about two examples in, in the paper that got published in Technology and Culture. One example being the language of grand challenges, mm-hmm. um, which started off to be you know, kind of computer-related. Th- that I kind of grates on me because grand, for example, but challenge does imply it somehow implies a technological or technocratic or at least material answer. And I, I just I just think we have to work with the consciousness before we have to work with the matter. So that's yeah, yeah like the other one that I talk about are, are uh, deep transitions. Okay. And this this is the language of Johann Schott's group what since expanded globally. Um and and it's it's more in the spirit of yes we need a psychic revolution we really need to think differently we need to value things differently and I I think there of course the question is well what are the resources to draw upon to do that I think these are these are good questions um, but I don't think they provide the answers but it I I've just been impressed by people's kind of innate humanism coming out in in ways that are not very fancy but are very noticeable. I mean, I'll just give a, a plug for um, just one person who was a guest on COVID calls, Cassie Alexander, who's a nurse mm-hmm. who writes science fiction and yeah. but also has written a memoir of her called The Year of the Nurse. And it's this one example that I've sort of pulled on because mm-hmm. it's a it's her own writing. It's prose, but it's also stream of consciousness. It's scenes inside the clinic and it's her Twitter feed. Yeah. So it's also playing with temporal you know, that's the shift, like the life of a nurse on the shift, but it's also the life of a tweet. And yeah, yeah. And to show, and I, to me, I think it comes back to some of your thinking about time here that every day to a certain extent, if you're a healthcare worker right now, is this kind of yeah. rolling apocalypse. Yeah. And I, I just so I'm think, looking to healthcare workers, I guess. I'm, yeah. I always look to engineers. I have to, I'm on an engineering campus, so I talk with them. I, I value their input, but I'm also looking at healthcare workers right now. Well, I, I'm just struck by the shortage of healthcare worker-like labor everywhere. Right? I mean, all the, all the helping professions. Uh, I mean, that's all that's all you hear is kind of we can't find. I, I those people are there, but they just don't want the way the jobs define their role. I think. I mean, that that's a whole different story, but. Yeah, I th- I think reading almost anything. I'm just picking up stuff that that I've had sitting on my shelves you know, for a long time, and just you know, if I give up after a few pages, I give up. But just I, I've been reading Albert Camus' autobiography, a very poor kid in Algeria or Morocco and North Africa, and it just in Algeria, and he just uh, it's just that he's, it's so human, it's so full of longing and disappointments and family relations. So I think, I think you can read almost anything, uh, that, that appeals to you and, and it, it helps. It helps. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking to Rosalind Williams today about crisis and language and COVID times. And Roz, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the history of technology in this moment, um, being that you were previously the president of the Society for the History of Technology and the Da Vinci Prize winner. So what special role does history of technology analysis 
have? What does it um, what does it offer in this time? It's, I guess that question has been hanging over everything we've been talking about. Talk about Leo Marx and about your scholarship as well. But uh, for people who might not be familiar with the field and the special questions that it asks, how do you mm -hmm. see it in its importance right now? It's it's more important than ever in in presenting a concept of technology, not as gadgets, but as systems, systems that include human beings. Okay, this this sounds like a, a plug for human infrastructure, uh, but yeah, right. In other words, there is no system that functions without the nurses or without the equivalent. So history of technology gets that and broadens the discussion from the thing to the system to the human system. Okay. And, th and that means it brings in psychology, it brings in the, the inner uh, self. My Da Vinci uh, talk was titled History of Technology from the Inside Out. Okay. And, and the, the feelings are very real. They matter. They really, those feelings interact with the material world. And that's what history of technology at its best uh, studies. These, you know, we've been talking about moments in time that help us understand how crisis evolves. They're pretty highly technologically charged moments. Yeah. It's sometimes moments of, of too much of something, too many nuclear weapons, maybe, or, or not enough of something, not enough not enough oil. I, you know, look, I'm predetermined to try to translate this through the history of technology lens, mm -hmm. but um, it does seem that we have, when you bring technology and crisis together as dual concepts, you've gone sort of next level in, in terms of the need for translation. Uh, just let's think about 9-11, okay? And after that event, when I was teaching history of technology, I would use as a uh, as a presentation a film that was shot in the World Trade Center before the collapse by by some it happened to be French filmmakers who were in town, but they were following the firefighters uh, in in the World Trade Center, and I would ask the students, I'd say, just look at this and you tell me what technological systems you see, what people you see, what codes are being used, what assumptions are being made, what you know. What, how is this working? And and heroism, the heroism was part, you know, part of the system. That system would not have worked unless somebody was willing to go up that tower, even though their life was at risk and often lost. So so, if you teach history of technology and you do and you do it within that spirit, um, you know, then then I think it really helps everybody kind of look at the world a little differently, just, just seeing it in terms of not just the material things, but the, the human traits that make them operate. So we're almost up on time in our discussion. I, I wonder if you might give us a preview of what you're working on next. <laughs> you know, at my age, <laughs> I, I've decided I, I'm not launching another writing project. Uh, I'm not going to write another book. That's, that's just more effort than I have. I, I have decided I'm going to focus on two projects. One project is understanding history at a time. I mean, I'm 
it's baffling at many times. And where are we headed? What's happening? I want to understand history. That's the first project. Second project is I want to renew and strengthen attachments. And by that, I mean human attachments. This Again, I don't think I'm alone that during the pandemic mm-hmm. and also just, just getting older, getting retiring, it's like, you know, time is limited. I There are people I want to reconnect with. I want to talk to them. I want to so those are my projects, attachment and understanding. And I will let you know if either of them succeeds. <laughs> well, I mean, I just want to, the second one is I fully endorse and, and, and appreciate. And, and mm-hmm. I think we all struggle with that in our own ways, how to keep attached in, in this time. Mm-hmm. And reattachment yeah. will be um, important as people can, I haven't seen my family in, United States now for almost two years. And so that's a really oh. important part of our, what we're going to need to do in, in this next phase. But um, the first part I want to undermine, you're a scholar of history and have been your entire career and you're trying to understand history. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yes. You know how good just, that makes me feel, Ross? <laughs> just like science, it keeps changing. It's not right. what we right. when we say history, you know, it's very different from what, for example, you know, to have the environment, what the heck is that, as part of history? That's just, you know, back in Roman times, Middle Ages, that, that's, that's crazy. I mean, you just, history is people, it's wars, it's the state, it's certainly not women, you know, either. Right. So, so history has really opened up and that's great, but it means we have to keep coming back and trying to reinterpret history now that, now that it's broader. I want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guest today, Rosalind Williams, the author, her latest article is she's written many books and you should check them all out but the article we talked about today is crisis the emergence of another hazardous concept uh rosalind great to have this time with you thanks so much for illuminating the concept and wishing you all the best and you too thank you stay healthy everyone we'll see you tomorrow on COVID calls 